good to be with you, and I appreciate the, the thoughts from Scripture, uh, various Scriptures you read this morning, and the, the part of uh, Apostle John writing and lots of different things there in, in, his, uh, in his letters, but giving us assurance as, his, as God's children, we have assurance that we are his children and, and we are saved. Uh, lots of good thoughts there. Thank you for that. Um, our text this morning is from the, the Gospel of Matthew again. I'm continuing on in, in this sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And uh, I was made to think again, I've said this many times, and I'm going to say it again, but I was made to think again, here I am uh, about to share a message from Matthew's Gospel, and if you look at this text that I just mentioned, these are printed in red in a lot of your Bibles, meaning this Jesus' words. And how can I stand here in front of you and improve on that? Uh, that's kind of very sobering to me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I can do that. Uh, but I want to talk about it, and uh, yeah, we'll just discuss it. And I, I welcome your feedback if I... If I skew anything the wrong way or anything, please, please come to me. I've entitled this sermon, Briny and Bright. Uh, little memory aids. You like memory aids when you take tests or studying for tests? Uh, some people have studied that way, and they like memory aids. And I thought, this is a little bit of a memory aid, maybe, for today's lesson, uh, starting with the same letter, Briny and Bright. You know what Brian is? Brian is a salty solution, okay? So briny and bright. I think we're, we're going to read about this morning is being salt and light, okay? So in my previous sermons, I've considered the conditions and attitudes <clears throat> in our lives that are essential to living a truly God-honoring and happy life, according to what Jesus preached and taught. <clears throat> these were called the Beatitudes. So these guidelines deal with the inner person, where we need to be something before we can do anything. I'm going to do this one more time, and we're going to read together the Beatitudes, even though that's not our text, it's just prior to our text today. But we're going to read this together, just as a review. Uh, I guess I'll start with my left, uh, read the white part, white verses, and my right, read the yellow verses. Ready? And seeing the multitude, Thank you for reading that. 
<clears throat> so as we think of these Beatitudes, <coughs> back up here. as we think of these Beatitudes, let's think of them as a steady progression upward, upward towards spiritual maturity. From becoming poor in spirit, that's the first building block, that's the first one we talked about, becoming poor in spirit, we go on into a state of mourning, after which we emerge stronger than ever. That's meekness. Remember, I said stronger. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is what? Strength under control. Okay, so we, we move on to meekness. Then we move on to having a real hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then we progress onward. And it changes how we view and how we relate to others. And subsequently, mercy becomes our natural response to dealing with people. We become merciful. We, we have compassion on others. <clears throat> Excuse me. We then become pure in heart. Pure in heart to the extent that our reputation for right thinking and right acting casts us in the role of being the next one, peacemakers. Peacemakers. And then at that point, as we're progressing along those lines and we're, and we're interacting with people, we can be trusted. People will tend to trust us. And that role also carries with us a reminder, when you enter into peacemaking, um, it can create some other difficulties, which can lead to being persecuted for righteousness sake. If you step into the the, a problem situation and try to make peace in a situation like that, you may be persecuted. And Jesus tells us you will be persecuted. So, uh, but we can, doing it, following Jesus' uh, prescription for happiness, true happiness, uh, we can be at peace in our hearts knowing we are doing things his way. We are suffering for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake. All right. Regardless of our external circumstances, our lives will not be any more enjoyable than our inner person. It's important to remember that Jesus told us that we are able to experience happiness regardless of our outward conditions. Now, I want you to notice again this <coughs> definition of this word blessed. Uh, and this is the uh, Amplified Bible. Uh, verse 3, I believe it is. It says, happy to be envied and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of our outward conditions. So my question to you is, and my challenge to you is, is does, that, does that describe you today? Does that describe you today? Regardless of your outward conditions, you have that inside. And if not, why not? Maybe if that's your case, you need to pursue why that's not, why you don't have that. Okay? Today, we're going to move on, and we're going to learn more about how we live out this life of joy and happiness that we spent several times talking about. So follow along as I read the next text, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I'll read this, just follow along. <clears throat> Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven.'" <clears throat> 
These are Jesus' words. Both of these statements are positive challenges for us today. Do something about the world in which we live. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us helps us to demonstrate the power of Jesus to the world around us. Many of you noticed this little lamp in front of me this morning. I brought that along as a little bit of an object lesson. My understanding is that what's inside that basket is Himalayan salt rocks. And inside that, there's a light bulb. So it's a representation for us today to be salt and light and to allow the light of Jesus to glow through us. So think about that as you look at that light today. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. <clears throat> Let's look at the first one. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. God gives his children various names in the scriptures. Uh, we're called sheep. We're called brothers. We're called little ones. And if I was to open it up and do the popcorn thing here, you could probably pop off a whole bunch more names that we are called as Christians. We're not going to do that. But there's many different names that we've been called as Christians in the Bible. And Jesus gives us another name today. He says, ye are salt. Ye are salt. He's reminding us that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to be an influence in the people world, just like salt has an influence in the physical world. A lot of you know about the characteristics of salt and how it responds in the physical world, how it, uh, when it comes in contact with some metal objects, maybe what happens and things like that. So salt affects the physical world and Jesus wants us as salt to affect the people world. In this one verse, Jesus makes three statements that I'd like to consider. You're the salt of the earth. In that description, that statement, I'd like to analyze that a little bit. Uh, the next one is, what if the world, what if the salt, excuse me, what if the salt loses its strength or its quality? That's a danger that we want to avoid, and we're going to look at that. And thirdly, salt can become good for nothing. And that's an end result that we'll look at and try to steer away from as believers as salt. Let's first of all look and analyze this statement, ye are the salt of the earth. Salt is important in the maintenance of our bodies, of our health. We get too much salt, it affects our blood pressure. Uh, we can get too much salt and we can have not enough salt in our bodies. We have to be stabilized. Uh, it's also a preservative. It retards spoilage. It's also a condiment that you can put on food. It adds flavor and zest to our food. <clears throat> so we are called salt because of our preserving ability. It's the first one. I have several here that we're going to look at, but they all start with P. Uh, another memory aid. Uh, our preserving ability. Salt wards off rot and decay. When it's rubbed onto meat, it preserves the meat. Sometimes we uh, uh, cure some meats with salt, right? Some ham or some bacon or something like that, you will cure it with some salt. <clears throat> Even so, salty Christians help to preserve a corrupt society from being judged. 
Proverbs 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We also have the example in the Old Testament of the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what happened there? We had that conversation going between God and Abraham about the righteous people, how God was going to destroy these cities, and Abraham says, oh, please, you know, if there's how many, if there's, and he went down the whole line, and he got down to where? Down to 10 people. If there's 10 righteous people, will you, will you still destroy it? And God says, nope, not if there's 10. But there wasn't 10. As we know the story, there wasn't 10, and the city did get destroyed. But what I'm, the example is, what I'm trying to say is, Righteousness helps to uh, preserve the corrupt society, maybe push judgment down the road further, give more of an opportunity for repentance. That's up to God to judge, I know that, but uh, as salt, it has a preserving ability. Secondly, we have a penetrating ability. We're called salt because of our penetrating ability. Salt, <clears throat> mentioned earlier, is a very aggressive sub substance. It penetrates and infiltrates whatever it touches. In the book of Acts, the early church was scattered secondary to persecution. And if you study church history and even modern uh, Christian history and things in different countries where they don't have the freedoms that we have here in America, we know that when people are persecuted for their faith like that, people tend to get scattered. But what, ironically, what tends to happen? More believers come along, don't they? The church actually grows during those times. Uh, probably not 100% across the board, but a large percent of the time when there's persecution, the church actually grows. So we as salt have a penetrating ability. Thirdly, we are called salt because of our purifying ability. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha, cleansed the waters at Jericho with salt. <clears throat> In Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 4, it says this about the city of Jerusalem. Speaking of Jerusalem, it says, And as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. So a common practice was for babies when they were born was to wash them in salt, to cleanse them and to firm up their skin. So the world behaves differently when a Christian walks in the door. Speech changes, actions change. Have you noticed that? I hope you have. If you, if you walk into like, maybe it's a place of work or something and there's unbelievers around and all of a sudden the stories come to a close or the conversation stops. That's the effect of salt. And that's right. We are salt. <clears throat> Next one is our pleasing ability. We are called salt because of our pleasing ability. Salt blends and it adds flavor to food. It brings out the best. And likewise, again, as Christians, we need to bring out the best in those around us. Our poisoning ability. Ooh. Yeah, salt can be poisoned. You ever put salt on a slug? Doesn't last very long, the slug that is. Doesn't last very long. And it will kill vegetation. I have in the past made some homemade ice cream. You like that? 
make homemade ice cream in a, in a churn and you put that salty brine in there, ice water bath, salty bath, and you make that good ice cream. And then when it's all done, you got to clean up the mess and you take that bucket of stuff and you just dump it out in the yard. Well, guess what? In a couple of days, you're going to come back to this nice big brown spot. I speak from experience. So salt has a poisoning ability. It will kill grass and vegetation. And pure Christianity is kind of a poison to sin. When Jesus comes into our life, the drinking, the cussing, the hating, the killing, the drugging, the loose living, all these things, and the New Testament has a long list of sins. All these things are put to death when we have the light of Jesus in our heart. All right. Next one is our promoting ability. Salt kills, excuse me, salt creates a thirst for water. <clears throat> salt creates a thirst for water. Eat something very salty, pretty soon you're going for a glass of water. And so the, the uh, correlation here is are you causing others to thirst for Christ? Are you being salt to the people around you so that they're like, ah, I need that living water? All right, and lastly, we are called salt because of our proven ability. Salt changes nearly everything that it touches. Put it on food, it'll change it. Put it on ice, it'll change it to liquid. Um, and as I've said before, as Christians, we are called to be thermostats in this world, right? Not thermometers. We are called to be thermostats. We are called to make a difference in this world. Make a difference in the temperature, not just tell the temperature. Okay, We're called to be thermostats, not thermometers. So... Uh, Make a difference to, to the world around us, the people that we touch. We need to be instrumental in a positive change in this bad world. All right, let's move on. Let's notice the danger then uh, in this first verse, the danger that's to be avoided. Salt, as I understand it, if I understand it correctly, was very valuable in the ancient world. It's been said that the Roman soldiers were paid their wages in salt. Maybe you can dispute that. It's okay. That's what I've heard. Uh, that they were paid their wages in salt. <clears throat> the payment was called the salarium, which is a Latin word from which we get the word salary. Also, we've heard the word saline. That's salt water. So this practice is also this practice of paying with salt is where that little expression comes, he's not worth his salt. Meaning, he didn't do it, he's not doing a good job, he's lazy, he's just not worth his, what he's getting paid. He's not worth his salt. The danger is that it was possible for salt in that day to lose its flavor. My understanding, again, you scientists can prove me wrong and it's okay, but my understanding is that the salt was different from that day from that it is today, that we, the Morton salt and the things that we use today, uh, that they would have gotten their salt probably from the salt cliffs along the Dead Sea or it was evaporated from the waters of the Dead Sea. But either way, it was mixed with other minerals, other vegetable matter, and things like that. And when this substance was exposed to the elements or when it touched the earth, the salt lost its salty taste. My understanding would be that, so the salt content in this matter, this handful of, quote, salt that you would get, 
the salt content will be more minimal than what we have today, and there will be lots of other things mixed in. So if it comes in contact with moisture, say, it might dissolve the salt and it would run out. The brine would run out, leaving behind what? Other minerals or dirt or whatever. And so it's not really salt anymore. So that's the picture that we're trying to portray here. I think that's what Jesus was saying, the, the types of salt that they used, that they, he was... He was Using an example of something they could relate to. <clears throat> uh, so it was no longer valuable, it was tasteless. And likewise, it's possible for us today as Christians to lose our saltiness. It happens when, just like that salt in ancient times, comes in too close contact with the world, with the earth, with the sunlight melting it, or whatever. Whenever we come in close, close contact with the world, we hang out with the world and we, and the world rubs off on us, so to speak, we can lose our saltiness. It's a danger we have to be careful about. So uh, the Bible does say we need to be in the world, but it says not of the world. We do need to relate with people. Jesus related with the, un the ungodly people, and we do need to do that very much, but we need to be also very careful not to let the world rub off on us. All right, I think we'll move on. So number three, beware of the end result of bad salt. <clears throat> so in ancient times, when the salt lost its savor, it was then taken out and cast into the footpaths, much like the gravel that we put on our driveways today. The only purpose then was to kill the weeds that might grow on the road or for people to walk on and keep their sandals from getting all muddy. Literally, it was to be trodden under the foot of men. Even so, like salt, when we are living for the Lord, men may not like us. But there's often a certain respect for the stand that we take and for the testimony that we possess. When we allow our testimony to become tainted by sin in the world, then men will walk on our testimony. And we will become absolutely useless to the Lord as a vessel of witness. I'm sure all of us here today want to be useful vessels of the Lord and not be like that, like I just described. We want him to be able to use our lives to bring others to himself. But there is danger. We need to be aware. Paul knew that. He knew the potential to be worthless, useless. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he wrote these words follow along there. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. Paul was aware of the danger and we need to be aware of the danger. So question again is are you a salty Christian? Let's move on to the next verses. The light of the world. Ye are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. So Jesus uses two powerful metaphors to describe the people, and he calls us both salt and light. Both of these substances are very valuable and are very useful, but both are vastly different in the way they approach their respective functions. Salt is hidden. Light is obvious. 
Salt works secretly while, so while light works openly. Salt works from within, light works from without. Salt speaks of the indirect influence of the gospel while light pictures its direct communication. Salt is largely negative. It can retard corruption, but it cannot change corruption in it cannot change corruption into incorruption. Light is more positive. It is not it not only reveals what is wrong and false, but it helps produce what is righteous and true. So when Jesus called us salt and light, he was telling us that we were left in this world to influence it for the glory of God. We are to be salt, as mentioned earlier, to retard the corruption in this world. Both salt and light are kind of miraculous, at least very amazing. Salt is composed of chlorine and sodium, and individually, these can both be very dangerous. Uh, sodium is flam flammable by itself. Chlorine can be very hazardous, especially when mixed with something else, with another substance. But God has combined them both and made them stable, edible, valuable. It's called sodium chloride, table salt. Light is also pretty miraculous. You ever read a definition of light? Here's what Webster's Dictionary says about light. Number one, something that makes vision possible. That's three definitions. The second one is the sensation aroused by stimulation of the visual receptors. And number three, get a load of this. An electromagnetic radiation in the wavelength range, including infrared, visible, ultraviolet, and x-rays, and traveling in a vacuum with a speed of about 186,281 miles per second. Specifically, the part of this range that is visible to the human eye. So, Mr. Webster came up with a mouthful of scientific gobbledygook, didn't he? But on the other hand, it sounds like a miracle. And likewise, the child of God, a, a redeemed child of God is very miraculous as well. Very miraculous as well. Both salt and light have the ability to alter their world, and so does the Christian. Perhaps that's why Jesus uses these common everyday images to describe the people, his people, and the influence that they're to have on the world. All right, let's look at the power of this light. The beginning of verse 14. <clears throat> Ye are the light of the world. Light is an amazing thing. While it does not have physical properties... It has a profound effect on physical things. It's basically a wave of energy that, that, we, that can be seen by the naked eye. And so let's look at a few ways that light affects our world. First of all, light conquers darkness. Wherever there's the least bit of light, darkness is forced to flee. You can be in the darkest place imaginable, and probably most, if not all of us in this room have been into a dark cavern or cave at one point. And a lot of times the tour guide will say, okay, we're gonna cut the lights and let you see what it's like to be really dark in here. Uh, 
Y'all seen that, most of you? Yeah, most of the hands going up there. Been in that cave where all the lights go out, and it is just total darkness in there. All right, really dark. And then just a tiny match that's lit, and that darkness has to flee, has to go away. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. When God's word comes into our hearts, into our life, it's light. Darkness has to flee. In the same psalm, in verse 105, he says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Again, when the light enters, darkness flees. So I hope you can understand and appreciate that a godly Christian will bring rays of light into a very dark situations, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, or wherever you are mingling amongst the world. You're like a light in darkness. Thank God for the light. It can save us from making the kind of mistakes that we would likely make in the darkness. So light conquers darkness. Secondly, light colors drabness. You know that color does not really exist. Color is really just a trick of the eye. Light is usually perceived as being white, but it is in fact made up of energy in varying wavelengths. And here is a picture. I think a while ago, Judson put an actual prism up here on a overhead projector, and you saw a little bit of a rainbow color, but that's kind of a, a drawing here of what happens when you shine a white light through a prism and it breaks it up into all the colors of the rainbow. Okay? <clears throat> These wavelengths comprise all the colors of the spectrum. If an object absorbs all the light that hits it, that object will appear black, like this mug. So apparently that mug is absorbing all the colors. So it's black. But if you shine a bright light, a white light on a, this object, it's reflecting all the colors. And that one is white. If you shine a light on this one, it absorbs all the colors except blue, and so it looks blue. This one looks red. It absorbs all the colors except red. So it's a fascinating subject to study, you scientists, uh, studying light and beams of light, things like that. But light colors drabness. Jesus said that his people are the light of the world. Not only should our presence put darkness to flight, but it also caused the world to be more colorful and beautiful place. And really, there's nothing like meeting another Christian, another believer out in the world. You're walking around uh, mingling with a crowd or something, and you come upon another Christian, another believer. It's very refreshing, isn't it? Especially sometimes you can enter into a conversation with them and, and really hear their story maybe a little bit or how they came to Christ. And, and you walk away from that experience very refreshed. Reflecting the light of the Savior, a ray of light in a dark place. That person brings beauty to a drab world. 
And again, this is what Jesus is teaching for all of us as believers to be. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ shining out of us. We're reflecting him. Light colors drabness. Thirdly, light changes deadness. The ancient, let's back up here. Uh, this going the wrong way. Light changes deadness. There we go. The ancient Greeks in their mythology, they looked at the beauty of springtime when it came along and after the deadness of winter, and they gave credit to their gods and their goddesses for the beauty of life that they saw around them. But we know, we know that it's just something different, that when spring breaks forth, God designed it that way. He designed, he created the world, he created all the trees and the flowers and how they start to bud and blossom in the springtime. That's God. It's not some goddess and Greek god that does that. But as the earth moves closer to the sun, you get this. The earth breaks forth in bud, in beauty, in color. Uh, makes you a little, a little spring fever there, doesn't it? See all that pretty colorful flowers. Uh, but that's what God does. When the light of the sun hits the the cool earth and it, the planet starts to warm up again, you have these flowers coming forth. And it's the same way. It's the light of the gospel uh, is within us. It brings life to dead souls around us. Our hearts are warmed by the truth of the word of God. And we are delivered from death and darkness by this light. Light brings changes. And just as, even so then, we have that light in us, then we, when we reflect on other people, we, we get close to other people in, in the world, and God uses our light, our witness, our testimony to warm that sinner's heart and to bring life into them. The love of Jesus. Fourthly, light conditions dreariness. Light conditions dreariness. So we have all sometimes get the winter blues, and we want that springtime to come around, that warmer temperatures and the flowers and all that. Uh, we get dreary sometimes, but light helps to condition that. Uh, the world can be a very dreary place, not talking to about the weather, but talking about the spiritual climate. When you listen to the news, maybe, or just mingle amongst the world, it's very dreary climate. But however dark and however dreary that climate is, when we're exposed to the light of the people of God, we can be brightened. They will be brightened. As I mentioned before, when we meet up with another brother or sister in Christ, it brings warmth to us. It can make our day go well. So thank the Lord for the redeemed children of God and the uh, church that he created. He designed the church. And thank the Lord for that, that we have the encouragement of, of brothers and sisters. A warm ray of light in a dreary place. Now let's look further at the next part of verse 14. And 15, 14b and 15. And let's look at the places of this light. There is... First of all, 
the light of an institution mentioned. Jesus refers to a city set on a hill. A city is not a, just a single light, is it? A city is many lights. It's a collection of lights. The cities back then, and I've not been overseas. Some of you have. You can verify this. But there are at least some cities like this overseas that are uh, constructed out of white limestone. So imagine a limestone city similar to this sitting on a big hill. And the sun rises in the daytime and reflects off that city. The houses are mostly white colors, white, bright colors like that. And so the sun kind of reflects off that city. It makes the city pretty visible, doesn't it, on a hill out there with the sun hitting it. <clears throat> it can be seen for many miles. Even so, at nighttime, when the night falls and the moon comes out, the reflection of the moon off of those white houses is also going to stand out. Plus, the lights coming out of the windows of those houses, again, the city's not going to be hid. It's going to be very visible from a distance. <clears throat> I believe that image of a city set on a hill speaks of us letting our light shine as a community of faith, as a body of believers. The influence of the church in the world around us as a church, we let our light shine by our standards, our style of worship, by the things we stand for, how we live our lives. We can tell a lot about a church by, uh, by the preaching they have, the songs they sing, the activities they engage in. Like a city set on a hill, we cannot be hidden. We either declare our stand for Jesus and we testify to his saving grace and power, or we stand for the world. can't be both ways. It's going to be one way or the other. So there is a light, the light of the institution, and also then he speaks of the light of an individual. He speaks of the candle in these verses. The word translated candle likely refers to a ancient little oil lamp, little clay container that has a flax, a piece of flax twisted up in there and used as a wick in the olive oil to make a light. Now, no one would take one of those little lamps and light it off and put a basket over it, would they? That would be foolish. No, they want to use that lamp in the house so that it can light up the room, so they can see other people, so they can do some kind of activity, maybe reading or whatever. I believe this candle that it's speaking of here, that Jesus is speaking of here, would be the power of the individual believer's witness. Just as a church has a, has a testimony, as a community of faith, individually we do as well. So we have a city set on the hill. We also have, talks about a candle. All right. Jesus saved us to be light for him. As he shines his light through us, those people around us who are in darkness are helped to see their way back to God. A lot of nominal Christianity thinks they fulfilled this calling by showing up at church Sunday morning. Not so. That's not what it's about. When you come here, when we come here, we come here to worship the Lord. We come here to encourage each other. And then when we turn around and we go through those doors, we then enter the mission field. Did you ever notice that Jesus spoke of some people who hid their candle under a bushel. 
People hide their light under all kinds of bushels. Some people hide their light under the, under the bushel of fear. Like Joseph of Arimathea. Remember that story? I'm not going to talk about it right now, but look it up if you don't remember it. Some, some Christians are, quote, closet Christians. Kind of secret. They don't want people to know it. They just want to kind of sit in the background. People hide their light under other kinds of bushels like apathy. They don't seem to care about the lost world around them, the people going to hell. But did you ever notice in reading in the New Testament the story of the rich man Lazarus? What happened to the rich man the moment he stepped into hell? He became a missionary. He wanted people to be sent back to his five brothers so that they don't come to this place. Well, we need to be not apathetic while we're alive on this earth. We need to be involved and be missionaries while we're here and prevent people from going where that rich man went. Don't hide your light under a bushel. And finally, the purpose of this light is a witness to the lost. Verse 16 of our text. It's a witness to the lost. When lost people see the light of Jesus shining through the lives of the redeemed ones, they will take notice. Jesus mentions good works here, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Works that are motivated by love, they're carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're performed for the glory of God. It's also a witness to our Lord. No greater witness than a born-again believer reflecting the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more powerful testimony than a life which displays the proof of his presence through the fruit of the Spirit in his life. There are a couple examples I'll just mention from the New Testament. Remember the story of the man living in the tombs in the hills of the, the Gerasenes? Jesus met him that day and the demons were cast out of him into the pigs. Jesus said to do what? Go back to your city. Go back home and tell them what great things God's done for you. And that's what he did. He went back and he was a changed man. Also, another illustration is the woman at the well that Jesus met. When she came to the well and met Jesus there, and they had their conversation, and then the Bible talks about her going back to the city and exclaiming, what she found. She found living water. So when we have this light within us, we need to tell others. We need to be a witness for our Lord. The lost world will see a difference that's been made in our lives. And because of that, ultimately, God is honored. God is glorified. A light doesn't call attention to itself. Light doesn't call attention to itself. It exists to draw attention to the things that it's illuminating. So we are the lights of the world. Jesus is shining through us. It's not supposed to call attention to ourselves, but we're supposed to bring light and illuminate around us, okay? Not draw attention to ourselves. Not magnify what we have done. It's about what God is and what he has done. A great God who loved us and saved us from a deserved damnation. I want to read a story in closing. 
story about President Woodrow Wilson. He told this story of being in a barbershop one time. He says, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in among, upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, uh, he showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because D.L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts, and I felt that I left that place as if I should have left a place of worship. That, my friends, is what happens if we're following Jesus Christ and the light of his love is shining through us like that, illuminating out through us. When we enter a place like that and then when we leave, while we're there and when we leave, there will have been a difference made. The conversation will change and God will be honored and glorified. What happens when you leave that room, that place full of unbelievers? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Little memory aid. Are you briny and bright? For closing, let's just sing a little song together. A little children's song called, This Little Light of Mine.